In my wrestling and in my doubts, in my failures, you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea, Lord. You are the peace in my troubled sea. In the silence, you won't let go. Your truth will hold Your great love will lead me through You are the peace in my troubled sea You are the peace in my troubled sea My lighthouse, my lighthouse Shining in the darkness
forward as we give back to God in response to all that he has given to us.
reading this morning comes from Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of the Lord. 
good to see you as uh, we gather today. Welcome to those of you who may be uh, guests here today. This is a college break weekend, so the service is a little bit smaller than what we might normally have, but that's okay. Uh, it's good to come together in the house of the Lord. A couple of things I just want to mention to you. Uh, we will not be having our Wednesday night kids program this fall. Our plan is to start that hopefully in the, in the, after the first of the year. And also two weeks from today, we start our um, eighth 24-hour-a-day, three-week prayer vigil. And this has been an awesome time in the life of the church. You may or may not have participated in this in the past, but uh, we are uh, encouraging people to sign up for an hour at a time. I know it seems like a lot, but there's a lot of things in the prayer room to do. We are designing this prayer room to, uh, for the uh, theme, Pray Freely. A lot of interactive things there, as well as just space to sit and think and listen to God and share concerns with God. And so uh, you can sign up this morning uh, here in the back or anytime on the church website. Uh, you can see the slider. It comes up as you open the hwchurch.org site, and you click on that. It'll take you to the calendar. And we are looking forward to uh, just an awesome three weeks together as we, we spend 24 hours a day in prayer over the course of those three weeks. Let me invite you to uh, take a moment and let's stand and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. I was eating at uh, Olive Garden this summer, and um, I was reminded of their slogan. I don't know if they still use it or not, but the, the slogan, when you're here, you're family. And um, subsequent to that time of being there, I read a little article where they were talking about that, and it made me think about my experience. And, and I have to admit, sitting there eating you know, the unlimited breadsticks and salad, I... I have to say, I can't really say that I felt like family sitting there. Uh, I did not feel like I was a part of a big Italian family by going to the Olive Garden. I, I didn't talk to anybody else in the restaurant. The server was there and left and really didn't engage in conversation other than, do you need more breadsticks or do you want some cheese on that? Uh, it, it, but what struck me is... The fact that they would choose that as a slogan for their restaurant tells us something about the human psyche, that we are looking for connections. We are looking for family. We want to be a part of something that's not only bigger than us, but is connected to us. It's the yearning of the human heart. And, and they have recognized that and are trying to tap into that. And when we come to the sixth chapter of Galatians, Paul has been talking to the church, the churches in Galatia. And now he comes to this place and he reminds them that we're all family in the church. And when we come together as the church, we are coming together as family. 
Over and over again, Paul refers to people as brothers and sisters because it's family. The problem we have when we start thinking about the church as family is that we want... I think one of our biggest struggles is we want to believe that the church is perfect. And it's not. Because I don't know about you, but families aren't perfect. My family's not perfect. I know it's hard to believe, but my family is not perfect. And I suspect, I don't think I'm going out too far on a limb to say, I doubt if your family is perfect. And that means when we all come together, we are imperfect families coming together to form this big family, which means we're going to be imperfect. And we get frustrated when people do things that disappoint us and hurt us. And we look to each other and we're thinking, you know, almost subconsciously, we ought to not be doing that. We ought to be perfect. We shouldn't be struggling with that. And yet the very first thing Paul says here is, when someone in the church sins, he's assuming it's going to happen. And the thing is, when we have a tendency, when we, when we come up against people who have disappointed us, hurt us, people who are struggling with sins that, that shock us, our natural reaction is to say, why don't we let those people just go somewhere else? Because our goal is purity. But Paul says the goal of the church is restoration. We're not trying to get rid of people who are struggling. We're trying to help bring them back into the family and to be a part of the family and to find forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. And that's our calling as people who are filled with the spirit that he's been talking about in chapter 5. And throughout this letter, he's talking about freedom. Over and over again, freedom. We've been talking about this the last few weeks, that Paul is calling us to freedom. And here he says, in the church, in the community of believers, people who embrace the Spirit, people who are open to the Spirit, people who want what the Spirit wants, have made a choice to use their freedom to help other people experience freedom. And that's our calling in community. This word restore that Paul uses is... It's a, it's a word that's used to, to describe fishermen mending their nets. It's a word that's used to describe what happens when a physician repairs a broken bone. It is make, taking something that is fractured and broken and unusable and making it usable once again. And that is the call of the church. Not to judge one another, but to be agents of restoration with each other. How do we go about doing that? I think one of the most significant means of bringing about restoration is confrontation. Because confrontation is one of the most significant acts of love any of us can ever do. Now that may strike us as odd because we tend to think confrontation is I exert my authority, I'm going to tell people what to do. It's about bringing, getting people in line. But that's not biblical confrontation. Biblical confrontation is always done, as Paul says, in a gentle spirit. With gentleness. 
The only way you can have a gentle spirit in confrontation is to, is to, is to keep your focus on the goal. If our goal is following rules, if, our, if we believe that the end goal of being a follower of Jesus is obedience then we will not confront in gentleness because our goal is to win. Our goal is to get people back in line. Our goal is to get people following the rules once again. And we will push them, shove them, do anything possible to, to get them back to that point. But I'm convinced that the, the call of the gospel and the, the ultimate focus of the gospel is not obedience, it's faith. It's trust. And when we trust, that leads us to obedience. But trust is the first thing we're moving toward. And when the goal is trust, when the goal is faith, then we don't have to worry about getting people in line. We're just worried about getting people back to Jesus. Worried about getting people to see Jesus and experience Jesus and and, and see the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. And we will do anything we need to do that is in their best interest to make that happen. And the difference between being, uh, being uh, harsh with our confrontation and being gentle with our confrontation is that, is that when we are harsh, when our confrontation is authoritative, the focus is really about us. We're going to get what we want. We're going to force people to do what we want them to do. But when the end game is restoration, then it's all about humility. And love. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 1, just remember your own susceptibility to sin. Nothing quite as humbling as remembering our own susceptibility to sin. Nothing quite as humbling as stop stepping back and realizing that right as we're about to judge somebody else in their sin, the Holy Spirit whispers into our ears, Really? You're going to have that attitude toward them? Have you looked at your own life lately? Right? Really? Now, the point is not that we just simply say to, to each other, you know, do whatever you want. We just want you to be here. We want you to be a part of this. We're, we're, not, we're not talking about, you know, we're just going to ignore sin. No, that's why confrontation is so important. He's not talking about ignoring sin. He's not talking about just wiping it out as if it isn't real. He's saying, let's talk about it. Let's deal with it, but in the right spirit. Because only then can we experience the forgiveness of Christ. Ignoring sin doesn't get us to Christ. Ignoring sin just keeps us down the path of destruction. Only letting Christ take our sin... And, and repenting of our sin and being confronted gently about our sin, can we experience the forgiveness of Christ? And it takes humility to do that. I read an, an author recently who was talking about how we confront, and he said that you can confront another human being basically in two ways. One is with a, with a confident assurance, almost spontaneous assurance that you are right. Or you can confront in, in a sense of struggle and fear and trembling, hoping, believing, feeling pretty sure that you're right. And the first way is the way of arrogance. And it very rarely is successful. 
But the second way is the way of humility. And it is usually successful. Because it's the way of Christ. It's the way of the Spirit. I think one of the clearest ways that we communicate that to other people is, as Paul says in verses 2 and 3, we bear each other's burdens. We see a brother or sister with, the, with this burden, and I think he's primarily talking about the burden of guilt and shame because of our sin. And in love, we take that burden off of them. We release them from that burden, even when it means taking on the burden ourselves. But we love each other that much. We care for each other that much that we take one another's burdens onto ourselves in a spirit of humility and kindness and gentleness and grace. And instead of judging each other and adding to the burden, we come in a spirit of Christ that takes the burden off of them just as Christ takes our burdens off of us. Our clue speaker, A.J. Swoboda, writes in one of his books about how when Jesus is resurrected, he is identified by his wounds. And he says, you know, I thought about that and I wondered, why didn't the wounds disappear? You would think that the resurrection of Jesus would mean that he is now whole and new and all of that stuff is gone. And let's just, let's just put Good Friday on the shelf and let's just think about Easter. Right? But he says, actually, Jesus is identified by his wounds. That's how they know who he is. And Isaiah tells us that by his wounds, we are healed. And H.A. goes on to say, that's our calling too. To bear the wounds of of the struggles of, of each other's lives. And he says, he makes an interesting statement. He says, we think the church is going to make us better people. But the reality is the church doesn't make us better people. It makes us crucified people. Crucified people who have been resurrected through Christ, but not resurrected people who act like we have no wounds. But resurrected people who live with our wounds, just as Christ does. And we do that gladly and lovingly because we care for each other. It's a part of bearing our burdens for each other. But it's hard to take on the wounds of other people. It's impossible to take on the wounds of other people unless the Spirit is living in us. And it's really an expansion of the fruit of the Spirit that he's been talking about in chapter 5. And the fruit of the Spirit is produced because the Spirit lives in us. Because because the Spirit takes us and the Spirit controls us. And that's why he says, be careful, watch out for your own life. If you think about other people and you never give any thought to your own life, you'll be doing what you do in your own power and we all know that's going to fail. But when you're thinking about your own life, when you're thinking about your own journey with Christ, the Spirit in you, And in me, 
And it gives us a sensitivity to the Spirit, an openness to the Spirit, so that we can be gentle and humble as we relate to each other. I suspect that the most sobering thing Paul says here is in verse 7 where he says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What you reap, you will sow. What you plant, you will harvest. I think what he's saying is, what you really want deep in your heart, that's what you're eventually going to get. If you want Christ, and even though we stumble and we fall and and we struggle and none of us are perfect, if deep in our hearts what we want is Christ, ultimately we will receive the fullness of Christ. But if we want self, If we want, as he says in chapter 5, if our yearning and our passion is really for the acts of the sinful nature, and Christ really isn't our passion, then we will eventually reap the fullness of self, and that is death and destruction. What we want is what we get, it's a law of nature. It, it's, what, it's what comes to us. And, and so he says, we, we, we need to be careful to understand that, that the direction of our lives, the passion of our hearts, will eventually lead us to where he wants us to go. And so what we do with our freedom is vital. Is our freedom surrendered to Christ? Is, or is our freedom something we cling to and say, it's all about me? I mean, Paul's been saying in the first four and a half chapters of Galatians, you're free You're free in Christ. No rules, no laws, no forms, none of that stuff. You get rid of all that stuff. You are free to be and do what Christ created you to be and to do. Let all that stuff go. And then when he comes to chapter 5, verse 13, he now says, but if you're really in Christ, then you never use your freedom selfishly. But you use your freedom to think about others. Use your freedom to restore and, and, and be agents of grace. And, and you sacrifice your freedom. You take on burdens from other people. Because you want, you want the fullness of Christ and the freedom of Christ. But you know, often, well, actually most of the time, the hard thing about harvest is that it doesn't come immediately. You know, we're, we're more apt to think about a vending machine with Christ than we are a farming mindset about Christ. I put in my, my quarter, I push the button, out comes whatever I want. As opposed to a farmer that plants in the spring and waits and waits and waits and waits. Jack's beanstalk may have grown overnight, but when we plant stuff, it takes a long time for it to come up. And as I mentioned to you, I think last week, talking about the peppers I was growing in my in my uh, in our on our deck in the pots, you know, every day I'd go out and think, okay, when are we going to see something? When are we going to see something? And it's waiting and waiting and waiting, and the first bud appears, and it feels like forever before it grows into something that you can eventually eat. And you wait, 
And that's one of the reasons why I think we struggle with believing that God's promises are true. Because we don't see them immediately. And we want to see things immediately. We love things immediately. But the reality is the harvest takes a while to get here. It takes a while to experience it. And we have to trust that what God has promised is true. Whether we see it or not. I think that has a bearing on on what he says in verse 6. Where where he talks about how uh, we ought to take care of the people who teach us the word. Now, on the one hand, this is, a, this is sort of like pastoral ministry uh, banner verse, right? You know, you, you take care of the people who are in leadership over you in the church, and, and you, 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 know, you support them, and you take care of them. Sort of like Joshua 1.18, where Joshua's just come into, into leadership of the people of Israel, and the leaders come to him and say, Joshua, we're behind you, we support you, whatever you say, we will do. And then they say, and if anybody disobeys you, we'll put them to death. Now, that's a verse pastors can get around, get behind right there, you know. This is serious stuff that we're talking about. We're going to do do what you say. Actually, this is a really hard thing to talk about. Because it feels a little bit self-serving. But it's not. It's not just about me. It's not just about our pastors. It's about the vision, the mission of the church. And see, if we, if our hearts are turned toward Christ, if our hearts are directed toward Christ then it's, it comes out in what we do with what we have. It comes out in whether we are generous with our money, our time, our gifts, all of our resources. We get behind the mission of the church. It's not just about uh, supporting one person. It's about recognizing that this is the place where God has brought us. And, and our goal, our passion, is to do what Christ calls us to do. And to be generous with whatever God has given us. And that means supporting the ministry of the kingdom. Where we are. And so we are pleased to support the fact that this church cares deeply about all the ministries throughout the world. And ministries right around us. And ministries within our church. And that we want to take care of the facilities that we have. And we want to be a church where, where we minister to our children and our youth and our adults to each other. And we support that. Because if Christ is really the focus and the passion of our lives, that comes out in what we do with whatever we have. And instead of thinking, how little can I give and still be okay with God? We think, how much can I give? How generous can I be and still live? It's the passion, the desire of our hearts. We don't always get to see those results. Sometimes they're difficult to see. But we believe and we trust That God is who he says he is. And that God does what he says he's going to do. And that we are engaged in what God is doing for the kingdom. And we want to be a part of that. And we use our freedom. Our freedom to do whatever we want with whatever we have. We use our freedom sacrificially. And we do it gladly. And joyfully. And patiently. And lovingly. Because... We want the Spirit of Christ to be seen in us. And so we get to the 10th verse. 
And Paul says, therefore, after all of this, do good anytime the opportunity presents itself. Do good. Not for, we don't have to do it for everybody. We're not responsible for everybody. We're just responsible for the people that God brings into our lives. We're responsible to obey the promptings of the Spirit. And we do good. And he says, especially to the household of faith, especially to the church. And some people interpret that as meaning that the church is more important than the rest of the world. That God is more interested in the church than he is the rest of the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. What he's saying is, if you don't see it in the church, why would anyone else believe it could possibly be true? If we don't love each other in the church, if we're not doing good for each other in the church, if we're not working toward restoration in the church and forgiveness and gentleness and humbleness and bearing each other's burdens, if we're not being generous in the church, why would anyone think that we would do that with anyone else? It is the radical nature of the gospel that we are called and and welcomed and created for freedom. And that we choose to use our freedom to act sacrificially. To surrender our freedom for the well-being of each other and the wider world. And we do it with joy because we know what Christ has done for us. And when we come to this table, this is a table where we see Christ and the church intersecting. This is a table where we come and we experience anew the grace of God in Christ. We come to this table remembering what Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 20 of Galatians. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We come to the table because of Christ's grace. But we also come to this table asking God to make us agents of grace. Asking God to make us agents of restoration and healing. Asking God to let us be people who bear one another's burdens. Who use our freedom to sacrifice for each other. To be agents of the work of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So my prayer is that we will be so aware of the grace of God in Christ to us that we will be so open to the Spirit's work in us that the most natural thing in the world for all of us is to use our freedom like Christ uses his. To the glory of God and to the restoration of the church and the whole world. Father, we thank you for your calling upon us. Thank you for your grace to us. Be glorified to help us Surrender our freedom for each other. We ask this through Christ. Amen.
We're going to spend a few moments praying together. And uh, it's been our custom for a while. If, if you'd like to come and offer your prayers at the altar rail, maybe just feels this morning like you should pray kneeling, then you're invited to come and to join me as we pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace to each of us, for the calling you've placed on our lives. And we ask today, Lord, that that you would help us in our struggles. We pray today, Father, not only for ourselves, but for others around us who are in need today. We pray for all who are grieving and ask for your your, your grace to be evident, your, your comforting presence to be evident in each of their lives. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with health concerns. We pray for Mildred Berry and Doris Asepian, for Blanche Weaver and Tammy Dunmeyer, Isla Shade, Sheldon Emerson, for Bob Joe Bear, Laurel Buker, Bill Getty, for Warren and Ella Woolsey, for Phil Muker and Mike Raybuck, for Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and for others who are on our minds and hearts today. Father, we pray for our nation. In this time of, of divisiveness, we pray for your healing grace. And let that be seen first in the church, and then through the church to the rest of the world. As we think about the racial divisions, we think about political divisions, we think about class divisions. Lord, all the ways in which we divide ourselves bring healing and restoration. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with recovering from recent disasters and terrorist attacks in this country and other places of the world. And we ask that you would bring your healing and your peace in the midst of chaos. We pray for refugees in our world. So many people who are struggling to to exist in a foreign place and displaced from their homes. And we ask that you would bring an end to war and opposition and persecution. You would restore all who are living as refugees. And Father, we pray for your church around the world. And we think especially of the church in Haiti. Having gone through this this recent hurricane and another disaster and, and so many deaths and so much destruction. We pray, Father, for your grace upon this nation of people that you dearly love. Let your church be a beacon of hope in the midst of despair. And give us grace to know how we might respond to share in the restoration of the people of Haiti. Father, we, we pray today for uh, the ministry of this church. And we pray for our, uh, for our pre-K Sunday school classes. For all of the little children who are part of this church, we ask for your protective care upon them. And we pray for every teacher and helper in these classes that through their influence, these little ones would continue to know how much you love them 
that it would set the path of their lives to follow you and to serve you, to be your people every day of their lives. Father, we pray for the churches around us. And today we pray for the Cuba United Methodist Church and Pastor Gleason. Pour out your blessing upon this congregation of your people. Bond them together in your love. And may they bear witness to your love, to the people in their community and beyond. Father, this is the prayer that we offer through the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks for all of your blessings. Amen. Father, we pray now that your blessing would rest upon the bread and the cup which we are about to partake. May it be food for our souls to experience anew your grace in Christ and, and the call of the gospel to be agents of grace and restoration and healing in this broken place. And this broken world. We ask for your anointing. And pray this through Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed. Meeting with his disciples. He took bread. He gave thanks to the father in heaven. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. Saying take. Eat. For this is my body. Which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're receiving communion this morning by the mode of intinction. It just means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, eat it. And then return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar rail is always open if you would like to stay and pray. We also have a tray of cups and bread in the back. If you would prefer that to coming to the front, uh, just let the usher know as your row is released. And we'll serve you in your row. And I also have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you'd like those, just let me know as you come forward. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This might be the first time that you have ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to Christ, with the desire to receive the grace of Christ and to be an agent of grace, then come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father.
Creatures, we were made for kindness. We can pierce the darkness as he shines through us. We will come reaching with a song of healing. And they will know us by our love. The time is now. Come church our
the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.